Our speaker this evening is the University Professor of English Emeritus at Boston College. He was formerly Distinguished University Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where he taught from 1968 until 2000. Professor Mariani is the author of seven poetry collections, that's to say his own compositions, and numerous books of prose, including 30 Days, On Retreat with the Exercises of St. Ignatius, and God and the Imagination, on Poets, Poetry, and the Ineffable, as well as substantive biographies of Hart Crane, Robert Lowell, John Berryman, William Carlos Williams, Jared Manley Hopkins, and Wallace Stevens. His honors include fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. In 2009, he won the John Ciardi Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry. This afternoon, he'll address us on Wallace Stevens, a final seriousness. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mariani. Thank you for the bottle of clear gin. I appreciate this. It's a pleasure to, and an honor to be here again at the University of Chicago. My oldest son, a Jesuit priest, uh, got his uh, PhD from the University of Chicago a while ago. So it's good to be back on the campus again. <clears throat> so we're going to look at the last years of Wallace Stevens um, and where Stevens's poetry uh, appears to be heading. A final seriousness, Wallace Stevens's late poems revisited. I say revisited because I have to take exception with a lot of the critics who have formally uh, written on, uh, on Stevens. I, to tell you what I think I found after 50 years of uh, teaching Stevens in seminars, uh, both at UMass and uh, at uh, Boston College. I want to look first at one of Wallace Stevens's early poems by way of prologue here. In May 1915, the 35-year-old Stevens, insurance man, lawyer, and up-and-coming poet, living in Greenwich Village with his wife Elsie, sent the editor of poetry, Harriet Monroe, what would become his signature poem. It was called Sunday Morning, composed of eight 15-line stanzas which summed up what Sunday mornings had come to mean for Stevens, now that he found himself midway through life's journey. Complacencies of the Penois, the poem begins in Stevens's Harvardian Frenchified mode, as Stevens, assuming the part of a young teachable woman, lounges in a chair facing the welcoming morning sun there in her apartment on a Sunday morning, perhaps Easter Sunday, April the 4th, 1915, when New York City was blanketed with 10 inches of snow, a fitting first Easter now that so many soldiers lay piecemeal in the trenches. Instead, Stevens's muse enjoys the pungent, passing pleasures of late coffee and oranges and the green freedom of a cockatoo upon a rug, her senses mingling synesthetically to dissipate the holy hush of ancient sacrifice. This is Keats, of course, the Keats of To Autumn, transported now to an apartment on Manhattan's West 21st Street, where an exotic cockatoo with its erectile crest struts across a green, sun-drenched living room rug, whether that was a real cockatoo strutting about the apartment or a cockatoo embroidered upon a rug, as was fashionable 
among the elite at that time, or a combination of the two in a world where reality imitates art. And over against that green freedom, as the woman hears the bells calling the faithful to Sunday services, her daydreams are suddenly interrupted by the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe which turns everything on its head, the thought of death, her death and ours, and of that final silence which will never be broken. But what of the comfort of the resurrection, of eternal life in Christ, which had consoled his mother in her final sickness two years before? To which the speaker answers that he has come to understand now that life is a journey over wide water without sound, a meaningless procession of the dead in which Christ has died as well his holy sepulcher, a mere memorial to his and our mortality. And if Christ is dead, why then give her bounty to the dead, especially as there dwells in each of us a divinity of sorts, and one that flourishes not in darkness and phantasmagoric shadow, but rather in the comforts of the sun in pungent fruit and bright green wings, or else in any balm or beauty of the earth. If there is a heaven, that heaven must be here, here in the moment we have been given, living as we must among the wide spectrum of feelings we are heir to in all weathers and all seasons passions of rain, or moods and falling snow, grievings and loneliness, or unsubdued elations when the forest blooms, gusty emotions on wet roads on autumn nights, all pleasures and all pains, remembering the bough of summer and the winter branch, these are the measures destined for her soul. No God created us. Instead, it was we who created God, humanizing him more and more until he moved among us as a muttering king, an image not unlike his own dead father, really. In time, <clears throat> we even gave God a human face, commingling virginal with heaven because we had to, creating alongside that God a heaven no different, finally, from the earthly Eden we mortals created with our unappeasable longings. All we can ever really hope for, the poem reminds us, is to inhabit the world upon which we walk, a world in which pain and suffering are inextricably woven. That and the things Stevens most hungers for and cannot seem to get in this dividing and indifferent blue of life, the dream of some enduring love. But what really endures for us? Not the pale white thought of heaven, nor some classical golden underground, nor isle melodious as the Greeks and Romans had it, nor cloudy palm remote on heaven's hill, such as one might see on an imitation Tiffany stained glass window in the church one had once attended. No, what really endured was the eternal round of the seasons, April's green, or absent that the memory of awakened birds, and an evanescent June, and the consummation not of the dove as at the Annunciation, but that other consummation of the swallow's wings, disappearing from
from the darkening gray-black cobbled streets below. The seasons come, the seasons come and go. And what death reminds us of is this, that there is a season for new life, a time for erotic desire and reproduction, where the present generation brings forth the next before it goes its inevitable way. Which is why boys take the disregarded plate left by their parents and place new plums and pears upon them, offering these up in this reversal of the Genesis story to the maidens, who will taste and stray impassioned in the littering leaves to birth a new generation. Death is the mother of beauty, Stevens tells us, not once, but twice. And in time, even his girl, his Elsie, will become an image of his mortal earthly mother, because she must. And he? What is he if not one among a ring of men, reversing Matisse's version of the dance, supple and turbulent, singing his Whitmanian boisterous devotion to the sun, naked among them, like a savage source. Who is he finally, if not part of the heavenly fellowship of men that perish, like so many young men, perishing that very Sunday morning in anonymous trenches somewhere north of Paris, and whose lives and deaths the dew upon their feet shall manifest. <clears throat> and what then is the final lesson the poet would impart to the young woman lounging in her peignoir this Sunday morning across from him? It is this, that we live alone and we die alone. In an old chaos of the sun or old despondency of day and night, or island solitude unsponsored, free of that wide water, inescapable. In the interstices between the then and the ever fleeting now, Stevens will conclude his poetic sermon with lines reminiscent of Wordsworth's prelude. Not in utopia, subterranean fields, or some secreted island, heaven knows where, but in the very world, which is the world of all of us, the place where in the end we find our happiness, or not at all. And so with Stevens as well, unwilling to surrender forever those mountains of his youth, or those woods along the New Jersey Palisades, where deer still walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness and in the isolation of the sky at evening. Casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. But even here, as the poem vanishes, into its own silence, Stevens leaves us guessing as to what those ambiguous undulations might mean, if in fact they mean anything at all, or what those extended wings in a poem so heavily fraught with Christian symbols might likewise mean if they too are meant to be read as anything beyond a casual causality. Now, <clears throat> let us fast forward some 35 years. It is late December 1950, and two world wars have come and gone. And now it's a cold war out there. Stevens, now 70, sends the Hudson Review a short poem called Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour. He had intended to write a long poem but has got no farther than the statement that God and the imagination are one. 
Still, the poem is one of Stevens's strongest from his last phase, and it offers a space in which the poet and the reader might collect themselves. What the poem seeks to do is try to comfort us in our essential poverty, a poem in which Stevens presents an old man with a shawl wrapped about him who sits alone in his room in the evening light collecting his thoughts, the mind for once at peace with itself as he feels now something like the obscurity of an order beyond himself and yet part of himself, a place where God seems to dwell and for once we are at peace. Light, the first light of evening, the poem begins. As in a room in which we rest and for small reason think the world imagined is the ultimate good. This is therefore the intensest rendezvous. It is in that thought that we collect ourselves out of all the indifferences into one thing within a single thing, a single shawl, wrapped tightly round us, since we are poor, a warmth, a light, a power, the miraculous influence. Here now, we forget each other and ourselves. We feel the obscurity of an order, a whole, a knowledge, that which arranged the rendezvous within its vital boundary in the mind. We say God and the imagination are one. How high that highest candle lights the dark. Out of this same light, out of the central mind, we make a dwelling in the evening air in which being there together is enough. He was still thinking about the subject a year later when he delivered the Moody Lecture that November here at the University of Chicago. He called it a collect of philosophy, and he had managed to include two of the church's closest associates in it, Jean Wall and Jean Paulin. But then he had also managed to get Longinus, Pascal, Schopenhauer, and Max Planck in there as well. At first, he'd been excited by what he had written, but going back over it now, it seems slight. And his chief deduction, that poetry is supreme over philosophy because we owe the idea of God to poetry and not to philosophy, no longer seemed important. But in fact, both were important. Weren't finally God and the imagination one and the same? Philosophers, after all, did not make discoveries, but rather hypotheses, which were in themselves poetic. And what the poetic imagination provided were the words and images essential to furthering scientific knowledge. If the philosopher probed the universe, making sure of his every step by logic and deduction, the poet moved far more swiftly and light-footedly returning over and over to the actual world he inhabited. To say that philosophers are poets, he told Barbara Church, does them no harm, and at the same time somehow magnifies poetry, so that one comes to see poetry in all its greatness and power, in spite of all the bad or silly poetry. Civilization was to be measured then by how far poetry could go in imagining the idea of God. After all, was not the very concept of some final knowledge, some omega point, something poetic in itself? No. He was not an atheist, he told Sister Benetta Quinn that Christmas, though he did not believe today in the same God in whom I believe when I was a boy. But then to talk to her about God was like explaining French to a Frenchman. 
What he really liked doing, these cold winter nights, was watching the saintly moonlight through his bedroom windows, which he kept open to the winter air. And when he went up to his room after dinner and closed the door, he told Jose uh, Fail, it was like shutting out something crude and lacking in all feeling and delicacy. Perhaps it was selfish to think that way, but that was how he liked composing his world. Just a man, alone with his thoughts, including thinking about God, or at least the idea of God. Then, in October 1952, Stevens, now 73, <clears throat> published a poem in the pages of Poetry Magazine, which he titled, St. Armour's Church from the Outside. It is, as often with Stevens, a strange title, <clears throat> for there is no church by the name of St. Armour's, though there is a portal fronting the Church of the Good Shepherd in Hartford, Connecticut, known as the Armourer's Porch. It is an ornately decorated stone structure with engravings of machinery and gun components intermingled with ivy and Christian symbols. The church was financed by Elizabeth Colt, widow of Samuel Colt, who founded the Colt Gun Manufacturing Empire and built the large factory along the Connecticut River most easily recognized by the sky-blue onion dome one sees driving along Interstate 91 on the eastern edge of Hartford, Connecticut's capital. The Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd itself lies about a quarter mile west of the former gun factory in an open field with a large parking lot and was built in Colt's honor in 1868, six years after Sam Colt died of gout at the age of 47. Sam Colt was a hard scrapple man who grew up having to fend for himself and who became a millionaire by the time he was 40 by patenting and manufacturing Colt firearms, especially the six-shot Colt revolver, not only here in the United States, but in England and Europe and elsewhere, often by telling one country that the enemy was supplied with superior Colt firearms. Sound familiar? What is particularly odd is that the architect, Edward Tuckerman Potter, decorated the friezes, columns, and even the crosses with revolver parts, prominently or subtly displayed among the ivy carvings. If you visit the church from the outside, you will find an abundance of 1860 Civil War era army Colt parts, including pistol barrels, cylinders, frames, grips, hammers, loading levers, and trigger assemblies. As such, it is the only church in the world to feature guns in its decorative structure. Stevens lived and worked within walking distance of this edifice for nearly 40 years and visited the church at least from the outside. It is this church and much of what it tells us of American culture, both spiritually and aesthetically, that in his 74th year, Stevens compares unfavorably to the Chapel of the Rosaire, which Matisse designed at Vence between 1949 and 1951, when the artist was in his late 70s. He undertook this for Monique Bourgeois, his nurse during a difficult time for the artist. Monique later became a Dominican nun, taking the name Sister Jacques-Marie. And here is the poem, which you will also, I think, find in your books, and which I want to concentrate on today because it may provide clues as to what Stevens meant by attaining to a final seriousness after a lifetime of searching. St. Armourer's was once an immense success. It rose loftily and stood massively. And to lie in its churchyard in the province of St. Armourer's fixed one for good in geranium-colored day. What is left has the foreign smell of plaster. 
the closed-in smell of hay. A sumac grows on the altar, growing toward the lights inside. Reverberations leak and lack among holes. Its chapel rises from terre and sevely, an ember yes among its cindery knows his own. A chapel of breath, an appearance made for a sign of meaning in the meaningless. No radiance of dead blaze, but something seen in a mystic eye. No sign of life, but life itself. The presence of the intelligible in that which is created as its symbol. It is like a new account of everything old. Matisse, advance, and a great deal more than that. A new colored sunset that will soon change forms and spread hallucinations on every leaf. The chapel rises, his own, his period, a civilization formed from the outward blank, a sacred syllable rising from sack speech, the first car out of a tunnel on voyage into lands of ruddy ruby fruits, achieved not merely desired for sale and market things that press strong peasants in a peasant world, their purports to a final seriousness. Final for him, the acceptance of such prose. Times given perfections made to seem like less than the need of each generation to be itself, the need to be actual and as it is. St. Armour's has nothing of this present, this vif, this dizzle-dazzle of being new and of becoming, for which the chapel spreads out its arches in its vivid element, in the air of newness of that element, in an air of freshness, clearness, greenness, blueness, that which is always beginning because it is part of that which is always beginning over and over. The chapel underneath St. Armour's walls stands in a light, its natural light and day, the origin and keep of its health and his own. And there he walks and does as he lives and likes. There are echoes in this poem of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland with its, quote, reverberations and of one of Hopkins' most famous images, those blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, which fall gold themselves and gash gold vermilion, which Stephen seems to allude to in his lines. Its chapel rises from terre and sevely, an ember yes among its cindery nose. And of course the poem seems to speak to a number of eight other, other late poems of Stevens's. But there is one short piece of prose which seems to speak volumes to this poem. And that is in his appreciation of the poet John Crow Ransom in the pages of the Sewanee Review for 1948. Here's the heart of the essay. And what I have done here is to point the poem as I suspect Stevens intended to a late Ars Poetica for Stevens's own major concerns. One turns with something like ferocity toward a land that one loves, Stevens writes, thinking Key West and Hartford as well as New York City, but essentially of his own native land, the Pennsylvania Dutch country of Reading, as it was from 1880 to about 1910. It is to that world that the poet returns, demanding that it surrender, reveal that in itself which one loves. This, he insists, is not merely a nostalgia, not merely a sentiment. It is an affair of the heart, as it may be in one's poems, but this is a vital affair, an affair of the whole being, as in one's last poems an affair of fundamental life, so that one's cry of, O oh, Jerusalem, 
becomes little by little a cry to something a little nearer and nearer until at last one cries out to a living name, a living place, a living thing, and in crying out confesses openly all the bitter secretions of experience. And this is why trivial things often touch us intensely. It is why the sight of an old berry patch, a new growth in the woods in the spring, the particular things on display at a farmer's market, as for example, the trays of poor apples, the few boxes of black-eyed peas, the bags of dried corn, have an emotional power over us that for a moment is more than we can control. This is the search of Stevens as modern American romantic. And it helps explain why the poet views St. Armorous from the outside, <clears throat> that is, the outside of the church with its cult revolver parts, which helps shape what we call modern civilization with their so-called peacemakers. But also the idea of the poet as both outsider <clears throat> and at the same time a native insider. For while the activity of the poet or the philosopher may appear to be that of the outsider, the insider, Stevens believes, remains as the base of his character, the essential person, something fixed, the play of his thoughts, that on which he lavishes his sense of the prodigious and the legendary, the material of his imagination. What Stevens has come to understand is that the American poet, in the high romantic tradition, composes poems which are not composed of the books he has read, of the academies he has seen, of the halls and columns and carvings on the columns, the stairs and towers and doorways and tombs, the wise old men and the weak young men of nowhere in particular going nowhere at all. Rather, the poet is made of the hard stuff, on which a mountain has been bearing down for a long time with such a weight that its impress on him has passed into everything he does and passes through him outward a long distance. It is as if everything to which one was native took on a special quality, an exact identity a microscopic reality which only for what it was has a value because it was wholly free from its outsidedness. The greater the value he set on it, the dearer it became, the more closely he sought out its precise line and look, the more it became a legend, the peculiar legend of things as they are, when they are as you want them to be, without any of the pastiche of which the present vulgarizes so many legends, the quotidian, not as it is, but as we should like it to be. But here's the question. Is Stevens pointing to something more, as it were final in a final seriousness, by comparing Madame Colt's church with the one in Vance designed by Matisse? where light itself takes on a new reality as it streams through the stained glass windows, pooling on the floor and continually painting the walls with different transitory hues. In 1941, Matisse, who lived most of the year in Nice in the south of France, developed cancer and underwent surgery. And during the long recovery, he was particularly helped by that young part-time nurse, Monique Bourgeois, who had answered his ad seeking a young and pretty nurse, that's what he asked for, in the <laughs> and who took care of Matisse with great tenderness. Matisse asked her to pose for him, which she did, and several drawings and paintings of her exist. Then in 1943, Monique decided to enter the Dominican convent in Vence, a nearby hill town near Nice, not far from the convent where the young nun was stationed. That is where Matisse bought his own home, Advance. She visited him and told him of the plans the Dominicans had to build a chapel beside the girls' high school, which they operated there. She asked Matisse if he would help with the design of the chapel. He had never done anything like it, but Matisse agreed to help 
beginning in 1947. He was 77 then, when he began the greatest project of his life, and he spent more than four years working on the chapel, its architecture, its stained glass windows, its interior furnishings, its murals, and the vestments of the priests. It is perhaps the greatest ensemble artwork of the 20th century, and certainly its greatest religious commission. While Matisse had been baptized a Catholic, he was not a practicing Catholic any more than Santayana, Stevens's mentor at Harvard, and for whom he wrote to an old philosopher in Rome, published at the same time as St. Amor's. Matisse designed the chapel, he said, because it presented an artistic challenge. I'm going to skip a couple pages here. Okay. At 75, and Stevens died at 75, Stevens could be forgiven for looking back one last time on what he had managed to achieve, as modest as that achievement might seem. And that was what comforted him now. It was not what he had written, but rather what he should like to have written that constitutes my true poems, the uncollected poems which I have not had the strength to realize. Awards and honors were peripheral to all that, for the only true satisfaction for the poet lay in the making of poetry itself. He was back in New York City again for St. Patrick's Day, 1955, which he celebrated over a noisy, cheerful lunch with Marianne Moore and the Sweeney's at Barbara Church's apartment. And then he caught the 407 back to Hartford to avoid the possibility that the evening train, full of the festive and good-natured Irish, might not be as tame as it usually is. Now, with his long Valerie essay almost behind him, he was anxious to get back to writing a poem or two as the weather brightens. Of course, with Elsie still trying to recover from a stroke she had had in January, the house was unusually sleepy and full of sleep. Still, as the weather flowered, he was walking again once for nearly two hours, incredible as that seems. And that afternoon at Barbara Church's, the Sweeney's promised to send him a catalog of early Irish Christian art, which arrived at his office a few days later. It still amazed him how the identity of the Irish with their religion was the same thing as their identity with their lonely, misty, distant land, a Catholic country breeding and fostering Catholic natures. On the last Friday of the month, he and Holly, his daughter, his only child, attended a performance of the Berlin Orchestra in Hartford, something he looked forward to because in a world so highly undisciplined, the music of this orchestra would flow from the very center of discipline. That same day, sitting in his office, he had confided to his old friend and colleague, Anthony Sigmunds, that he'd not been feeling well lately. Maybe he should see a doctor, Sigmunds suggested. Oh, hell, Stevens answered. Go see a doctor, and he'll blab my business all over town. Well, Sigmundson's own doctor was a model of discretion. The doctor's name was James Moore, and Sigmunds offered to accompany him. When he saw Moore the following Monday, Stevens told him he'd been seriously constipated for the past month, and for the past several weeks he'd also been experiencing severe stomach pains, especially after dinner, in spite of the fact that he had almost no appetite lately and had lost a good deal of weight. And then it was Easter, which he described now as one of the year's most sparkling fets, since it brings back not only the sun, but all the works of the sun, including those works of the spirit that are specifically what might be called spring works, the renewed force of the desire to live and to be part of life. 
By then the doves had returned from Korea, and some of them sit on a chimney before sunrise and tell each other how happy they are in the most melancholy tones. His grandson certainly took Easter and the rabbits very seriously, he wrote Barbara Church, though Peter also took the Bronx Zoo and the lions and the tigers there and the circus with its 40 or 50 baby elephants with equal seriousness. And now that Elsie was up and around again, they'd let their visiting nurse go and they were trying to get back to normal. Time now, after all these years, to bid farewell to the poem. The final one he wrote was a short lyric, composed of four tercets, which he calls simply, Of Mere Being. It was a poem which evoked Long Key or Key West or Paradise, perhaps, with a palm at the end of the mind, beyond the last thought, rose in the bronze decor, and a gold-feathered bird sang in the palm, sang now without human meaning, sang even without human feeling, a foreign song. It was a world both intensely familiar and yet strange, which he found now. It was a place beyond fear, beyond anything human, where one knew somehow that it was not the reason that made us happy or unhappy. There in that land beyond language, a bird sings and its feathers shine, and the palm stands on the edge of space. The wind moves slowly in the branches. The bird's fire-fangled feathers dangle down. On April the 19th, 1955, he underwent a GI series of tests ordered by Dr. Moore, which revealed that some obstruction was preventing anything from passing through Stevens' stomach. Three days later, he was admitted to St. Francis, the Catholic hospital in Hartford, to which Dr. Moore limited his practice, and the grounds of which Stevens had passed each day for decades, now to and from work. On April the 26th, the day his grandson turned eight, he was operated on by, by Dr. Benedict Landry, the surgeon Moore had called into the case. What the surgery revealed was that Stevens had diverticulitis and a gallstone, but worse, cancer of the stomach. He spent the next three weeks at St. Francis Hospital recovering. Landry had called Holly in to explain that he'd found a large cancer attached to the back wall of her father's stomach that was blocking the opening into the large intestine. It was too late, he explained, to remove the cancer. But he had performed a gastroenterostomy above the cancer to allow food to pass out of the stomach. As was customary then, he urged Holly not to tell her father about the cancer and to tell him that he would, with time, recover. In the meantime, Stevens' secretary visited him each day at the hospital, taking down his correspondence, and then he would sign the letters. Six days after his operation, he dictated one such letter to Barbara Church. I expect to be able to leave the hospital towards the end of this week for several weeks of recuperation at home, he told her. The operation itself had been a complete success, and he would soon be back on his feet for a long time to come. For the past nine years, Father Arthur Hanley had served as chaplain at St. Francis. It was his ministry to see all the patients in the hospital, especially the Catholic patients. And it was Landry who had suggested he stop by to visit with Stevens. He received me very well, Father Hanley remembered. And he always said, be sure and come back, Father, be sure and come back, which was which was what Hanley did, stopping each day on his rounds for up to half an hour. They talked about a lot of things, including Stevens's poems. Hanley had taken classes in poetry, both at Boston College and at St. Bernard's Seminary, and had even studied Chaucer. He got quite a kick out of me when I gave off about five lines of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in Old English, Hanley remembered. 
So that he thought I was a, a real lover of poetry. But all the time in the back of my mind it was, how can I get this man in the church? He was very fond of Pope Pius X, who'd been canonized just a year before. He thought he was a very great man. He said that someday he was going to write a poem about the Pope. And so I said, oh, and what are you going to call the poem? And he said, I was going to call it The Tailor, or The Love of Poverty, or The Poor Tailor. And during that time, I did get some of his poems, and I read them so I would have something to talk about when I went into his room. Sarto, Giuseppe Melchiore Sarto. The good man is Taylor, perhaps with a nod back to that poet, shearsman of sorts, in Stevens' sequence of 20 years before. The man with the blue guitar. It didn't take Hanley long to sense that something was troubling Stevens' spirit. He wanted to talk, Hanley recalled, and he wanted to talk about God. Whenever he went to New York, he told Father Hanley, he used to spend a couple of hours in St. Patrick's Cathedral, quietly meditating because he found peace and enjoyment out of doing that. He had such a marvelous idea of what God was, Hanley recalled, that God was this absolute idea. <coughs> Everything had been created except for this one original uncreated concept, and that was God. Stevens was unusual in this respect, Hanley could see. And then Stevens added that if he was ever going to get into the fold, this was the time to do it. There was, however, one thing that bothered Stevens, and that was how a just God could construct a place like hell. Because a merciful God, knowing the weakness of mankind, would not fashion a place like that to punish anyone, not even a dog. And Father Hanley had heard this argument many times. And so we explained that whereas God was merciful, he was also just. And in his justice, he must recognize that some people, no matter what grace is given them, will repudiate him. But then we just didn't know that there was anyone specifically in hell except the devil and his cohorts. But if God was good, Stevens answered, how could he allow all this evil in the world? And so we went into free will and all that business. But of course, Stevens was really more of a poet than a scholastic philosopher, Hanley surmised. Stevens seemed to know quite a bit about the church and that there was just a few little things that kept him from becoming a Catholic, like this hell business. Hanley went on to explain that hell was mentioned 57 times in the Bible and that our Lord said, there was a hell, so we believe what the Lord said. Stevens nodded. That seemed logical enough. The Socratic catechesis continued until Stevens returned home on May 11th to continue his recovery. For nine days, he stayed at home. And then on Friday, May the 20th, he was moved to the Avery Convalescent Home on New Britain Avenue, five miles from home, where he would stay for the next month walking about the park-like grounds of the hospital each day. Each week, the Sigmunds went out to visit him at the Avery, though by then he was pretty much a changed man, Sigmunds remembered. They took him for rides, one time driving out to the Passionist Monastery in Hartford. And when Mr. Sigmunds, I'm sorry, when Mrs. Sigmunds asked Stevens if he wanted to get out and walk around the monastery's extensive grounds, Sigmunds, knowing that Stevens was not a religious man, interrupted. No, he nudged her. Wallace did not want to get out. But as he started to drive off, he heard Stevens say, I certainly do. I want to get out. I want to go down and see the church. Sigmunds, a practicing Catholic himself, was surprised. Stevens had never talked about religion except on a rare occasion when he mentioned how he liked to just sit in St. Patrick's and meditate. Years before when someone had asked Stevens about his religious beliefs, Stevens had dismissed the question by saying that he was just a dried up Presbyterian. But once, Sigmunds recalled, Stevens had told him that while he belonged to no church, 
if he ever did join one, it would be the Catholic Church. Mengel, too, this is uh, Holly's boyfriend, would remember visiting Stevens at the Avery with Holly. He was feeling pretty well that day, and Mengel asked Holly if her father knew he had cancer. By that point, Holly thought he probably did, though he had said nothing about it. At some point during that visit, Stevens began talking about his time at Harvard 55 years earlier with Santayana. He obviously was enjoying this, speaking of the past, Mengel recalled. But he also noticed a copy of the New Testament on Stevens's bedside table. The fact had surprised him, since it was the last thing he ever thought Stevens would be reading. Finally, on Monday, June the 20th, Stevens returned home, returning to that same day to the office to show his boss, Jameson, that he was ready to carry on as before. Yes, he was back in the office after an absence of about two months, he wrote Tom McGreevy, during which time he had spent his days in hospitals growing blanker and blanker. Even now, he hardly had voice enough to dictate this letter. Actually, he spent only two or three hours a day at the office, principally to accustom himself to the idea of being back and also to get over this initial period commonly, uh, commonly so full of interruptions. And if just now he was completely lacking in all vigor, he hoped that was merely temporary. The following day, he dictated a letter to Barbara Church, who was now back in France. It was going to take a while before he was back working full days, he explained. <clears throat> At the Avery, he'd been able to roam about the grounds in cooler weather, whereas here at home he was getting almost no exercise because of the intense heat. This is pre-air conditioning days. When he received his honorary degree that June from the Hart School of Music, they'd given him a black hood with brilliant red highlights. Peter, his grandson, had been there with his mother, and when his hood had been placed on Stevens' shoulders, the boy had turned to his mother and said, Grandfather got the best one of all. Stevens had liked that. Actually, he was surprised his grandson hadn't already fallen asleep. Sleep. What was it he'd said about his grandson the previous summer in a poem he'd called A Child Asleep in Its Own Life? Among the old men that you know, he'd addressed the boy. There was one not unlike his grandfather who seemed to brood on all the rest in heavy thought. But who were those old men, really, except in the universe of that single mind? But whose single mind? The mind of the boy asleep? Or the mind of an old man asleep in his own life? The beginning and the end of it? Each the sole emperor of what they are? Distant, yet close enough to wake the cords above your bed tonight? But even Peter's mother could not say what grandfather's poem was about since the words were meant only for those who could read them. And even Mengel was not sure what Stevens' dream song meant. Dear Elias, Stevens would inscribe a copy of his collected poem soon after. When I speak of the poem, I mean not merely a literary form, but the brightest and most harmonious concept or order of life and the references should be read with that in mind. Sleep. Most of the time when I am at home I drowse, he confessed to Sam Morris early in July. I am without energy even to read the numerous things that is sent to me. A few days before he'd received a manuscript in French, but as he explained, he just couldn't bother himself about such things while he was as limp as he was now. People still wrote him for poems but there would be no more poems. Now with the cancer spreading to his liver, liver, it was time to return to St. Francis's Hospital. This is when, uh, when uh, the first time he'd been at St. Francis, Hanley explained, Stephen still believed he was on his way to recovering, but this time he felt an urgency about getting in the fold but because his wife was not a Catholic 
and because it might seem that we got people into the hospital to drag them into the church at the last minute, Archbishop O'Brien told me not to let it be known. For his part, Stevens had not needed an awful lot of urging on my part, except to be nice to him. On Monday, August the 1st, Stevens slipped quietly into a coma. That evening, his family visited him for the last time. Holly had had to bring Peter to the emergency room that evening. And afterwards, she and Peter had stopped by her father's room to say goodnight. As it turned out, he'd regained just enough consciousness so that they were able to say their goodnights each to the other. Later that evening alone, he fell back into a coma and his fever intensified. At 8.30 in the following morning, he ceased breathing. The struggle was over. It was a stark funeral parlor, Margaret Powers would remember. No beautiful music, no beautiful service. There was some kind of a eulogy. I was so horrified. She wondered what her friend himself would have had to say about it. No feeling of an afterlife or anything like that. A small room with Holly and Elsie and Perda behind a screen. Later, Holly would write Margaret to tell her that the St. Christopher medal that had belonged to her daughter, Julie, had been buried with Stevens. Margaret's husband, Jim, would remember a crucifix on Stevens's pillow that his nurse or somebody had given him. Stevens had wanted that and the St. Christopher medal pinned on his pillow right where he could see it. How many times Jim and Stevens had talked about religion, Margaret remembered. Once Jim had told her that he thought Stevens would have liked to be in the church but just couldn't do it. It was given to William Carlos Williams to write Stevens's commemoration piece for poetry, where both had started out 40 years before. To me, there was something in the dogged toughness of the thought that gave it a dramatic quality, Williams wrote that October. He always reminded me of Goethe in his youth, when Sutrenen Blümchen filled his dreams before the devastations of the moral sense had overcome him. First, there had been Stevens the New York dandy, the Stevens he had known most intimately before he had assumed the New England conscience of a Dickinson or a Hawthorne. There was always a cryptic quality to the man's verses, Williams pointed out, a ritualistic quality as if he were following a secret litany he revealed to no man. Over and over again, as he reached his later years and began to be recognized for what he was, a thoroughly equipped poet, even in such a late book as the Auroras of Autumn, he could be detected to the surprise of the world in this secret devotion. The truth was that in the midst of a life crowded with business affairs, Stevens had shown himself to be a veritable monk. By then, Stevens had seen and uh, possessed what he wanted in this world, Williams believed. Henceforth, contemplation, vividly casting its lights across his imagination. One read Stevens, finally, for the sheer pleasure of the lines, which offered something difficult to isolate and capture in a phrase. Still, this much was certain. Stevens had written English as no Englishman had ever written it. After Dante's Vita Nuova, which marked a peak in musical verse, Williams had come to understand poetry forgot how to dance. English poetry, and so the poetry of the New World, had not danced since the Reformation had bred Milton with his paradise lost. There was no joy in it. And then along had come Stevens. Stevens had been so gay when he was young, that is, until conscience had overcome him, leaving only isolated flecks of that gaiety, like a caper half-heartedly performed with a backward look over his shoulder to show the man he had been. And now that Stevens had entered that other world, he thought his friends would want him to remember that young gay poet just starting out. Norman Holmes Pearson, who had attended Stevens's funeral, had sent Williams a letter afterwards from which he quoted now. A few neighbors had come to pay their respects. 
and a few from the Hartford. Somehow, though, the spareness of the scene seemed a fitting final scene for Stevens. Anyhow, he added, by way of afterthought, I miss him. Thank you.